Well, my first job um, outside of uni, when I when I kind of left uni, actually I was still at uni, um, was was outside my family's business. My dad had a small business um, that kind of did corporate awards, like you know, employee of the month, through to some of the Australian record industry awards, a whole heap of stuff. But they kind of made him glass and crystal. And I was doing some design for him. But then I finished that. I got a job as a graphic designer. Um, it was great, close to home. It was reasonably good pay. But as time went on, I could kind of see that the company I was working for wasn't as good as what I originally thought. It was kind of a sinking ship. And as you kind of got to talk to people more, um, they were kind of complaining about this and that. It was pretty small business. It was, it was growing a little bit and didn't really know how to go forward. And... Um, so by the end, I was like, I want to get out. They were asking me to do all sorts of stuff that wasn't really legit. Uh, I didn't do it, um, but they were asking me to do things that I knew I shouldn't. I then moved to a next job, uh, which was for a large architects firm in Sydney. Quite, it was 50 architects that worked for them. It was, it was a great company. Kind of ran really well and, and went, kind of, they had everything worked out. And it was just, they knew how to do good business. Um, but the funny thing is, I think I learnt more from the business that went bad and is now no longer in existence than I did from the business that was going great guns. Because you kind of get to see things that you change. You get to see things that when they don't work well and you can learn lots from them. Sometimes sitting back and seeing where they've gone wrong is actually helpful. What we're going to see today is a church that has pretty much almost got everything wrong. We're going to see uh, probably the second worst church in the Bible. Uh, next to the Galatians, this church has got the most issues. But the thing is, we can learn lots from it. We can learn lots from, from what's going on and why and how. So why don't we pray together now that as we look in depth at this, we don't kind of stand in judgment on these guys going, oh, as if you'd be like that. But we can learn lots about who God is and what he's done. Let's pray. Father God, we ask now that as we look at your word together, that you'd show us what is of first importance to you. You'd help us to be thankful for what church is and what you were doing. And out of it, Lord, that we would come out focused on your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's some Bibles up the back. Um, so go grab one. We're going um, to be working through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm not going to put the verses from the, the chapter that we're looking at uh, up, but I'll put any verses that are outside up there. encourage you to bring your Bibles from home. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home, um, it's on us. So go grab one and, um, and we'll give it to you. Well, chapter 1, verse 1 starts with one word, Paul. Unlike our letter writing technique where you've got to wait until the end of a letter to find out who wrote it, it's like, dear so-and-so, blah, 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 from Rome. These guys wrote their letters saying, Paul. And then we kind of work out, which Paul? Which Paul is this? And that's where you see the picture of the ugly Paul. This is the Paul that was, from, from the passage, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The Paul who was well known around the Mediterranean as a guy called Saul. The anti-Christian terrorist. The guy who went around hunting out and killing Christians. He was the Jew of all Jews, if you remember. The guy that wanted to say, no, these new Christian sect, they're wrong. I'm going to stamp them out. It's the Paul who was called out of his incredible darkness of persecuting Christians and persecuting Jesus and sent to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Apostle there, that word actually just means sent one. So when people say, what's an apostle? It actually just means someone who is sent. So he's been sent by Jesus. 
Now we see that the other apostles, the disciples, were sent in Matthew 28, 19. Should be up on the screen here. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. See, the faith we believe is the faith that the apostles passed on. It's the faith that they have that they've, they've been commissioned by Jesus to, to tell us and to pass on amongst us. And Paul, in Acts, meets Jesus. He, he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, um, and he then kind of gets sent out, recognises what he's been doing, becomes a Christian, changes his names, and preaches Jesus everywhere. It's one of the greatest conversions I've ever seen, right? This guy, Saul the terrorist, turns us into Paul the Apostle of God and goes and tells cities and towns and everyone he can come across, families, about Jesus, and they come. And one of those cities was Corinth. He took the gospel there and they heard about him. So Saul the terrorist turns into Paul the preacher. But did you notice how? It was by the will of God. By the will of God. It wasn't that he had a guilt trip one day and kind of thought, oh, I want to make myself a better person. It was that God reached out and grabbed his heart and turned it towards his son Jesus. If nothing else, hearing of Paul's conversion makes me just go, wow, what a change. But it does more than that. It reminds me that God can forgive anyone. Even you. Even me. He can can forgive anything. Even the stuff we're ashamed of, the most ashamed of, the stuff we wouldn't want to tell anyone. If he can can forgive Paul, he can forgive us. God not only can forgive us, but he can use anyone. You haven't got to be the best of the best, the fancy of the fancy. God takes the person who hated his cause and brings him out to speak the truth. And so much of the Christian world today has come to know Jesus through him. Paul can use anyone. And he can use any church. And we're going to see that now. The second thing we kind of see as we walk through here is the ugly church. Or is it ugly? What's going on? Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth. What is the church? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think through that before, but what is church? The word church just means gathering or assembly. That's a Greek word, ecclesia. If you ever heard someone say, oh, we're into ecclesiology, they're just into working out what church is. Just fancy words. But um, this word, gathering or assembly, we sometimes think it's really religious, like church is something especially that religious people have put together. Let me show you Acts 19.32, I think. No, maybe I didn't put it there. That Acts 19.32, the same word church is used of an angry mob of people. Um, so it's like an angry mob, and, and he calls them a gathering. Um, so really, the word just means gathering. It's an assembly, it's a church, it's the gathering of God. But this gathering is special. Throughout the Bible, we kind of get this picture that, that God saves through gathering and scatters through judgment. So when we looked at, um, at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, it's like God's, God's had enough of these people. They're trying to make a name for themselves and go out. And so he scatters them across the earth. And scattering has kind of always been a picture of God's judgment. Um, 
if you think about it, that's kind of what other ancient nations did, like Assyria. When the Assyrians came and took over other nations, they wouldn't just kill them all, they'd scatter them, they'd break them up, they'd break up their cultural structures, they'd put them all over different places, and you would no longer be a people. They kind of just dispersed and had no power anymore across the world. And so gathering is the reverse of that. It's bringing in those who are judged, bringing in those who are scattered and pulling them together. But this gathering is different. This is God's gathering. This is the church that God is making. The church of the saved people. From other parts of the Bible, like Hebrews and Ephesians, we see that the church, the gathering around God, is actually, the true church, is around His Son in heaven. The church is gathered around Christ right now. So Ephesians 1 says we're seated now in the heavenly realms with Him. The true church is seated right now. If you trust in Jesus, you are seated in the heavenly realms around Jesus. But here on earth, just 2,000 years ago, Paul can call the group of people who've been called by God, God's church. This is the earthly expression of that heavenly reality. God's church in Corinth. What makes them God's church? God does. He sanctifies them in Christ Jesus, which means he sets them apart. He calls them holy, set apart. And then here's where it gets personal in the letter. I don't know if you noticed it, but it said, To the church of God in Corinth, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. No matter where you meet, no matter how small you are, how insignificant you feel and how messed up we've become. If you're meeting together with a bunch of people to call on the name of Jesus around his word, in other words, Jesus is the only one whom you can be saved by, you call on him like you call on a lifesaver when you're stuck in a rip, if that's what you're doing, then you are the church of God. You are the greatest expression of what God is doing on this earth, right here, right now. This little insignificant bunch of people, seemingly insignificant bunch of people, is what God's about. This is his purpose for the world, to build his church. This is God's church, here, in Moe's Nest, St. Luke's, Auckland, New Zealand. And this letter is written to us. So when you're tempted to feel like there's nothing going on, when the sermon just feels a bit flat and boring, when the musos don't play your favourite song, when the loudspeaker interrupts the service, when you're tempted not to get out of bed, or other engagements kind of start creeping into Sundays, stop. And remember, this is God's mission. This is the greatest expression of what God is doing on earth as we gather here. And as other churches gather across Auckland and New Zealand, as, as other people call on the name of the Lord, that is, that is what's happening. But just here... This is amazing. See, God's mission on the whole earth is to create church. What's God about? Creating, gathering people together and eventually holding those people to the end so that when he returns, they are in him. But the church of God in Corinth needed a lot of growing. Corinth was a kind of a port city on the Mediterranean, somewhere like in Greece there. It was notorious for its immoral ugliness and substantial wealth of any city. Uh, it was a key city in central Greece. Uh, it was an isthmus, so it had ports on both sides. Um, and the church of God in Corinth, the church, was almost as wild as the city it was in. They were addicted to power and pleasure. 
They love fast talkers and smooth speakers. They battled to live life on Jesus' terms. It was a church that was divided in pretty much every possible way. There's 13 occurrences of what the divisions are amongst this church throughout 1 Corinthians. It was a church that lacked love. They were so into celebrating their freedom in Christ. I'm free to do whatever I want. But they would go to a brothel and sleep with prostitutes and say, I'm proud because I'm a Christian. These guys were the model of an immature church. But here's the thing. While they had more than their fair share of issues, Paul still thanks God for them. He points out, even more than thanking God for them, just how gifted they are. Have a look at verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace for giving you in Christ Jesus. That word grace there is just the same word as, as gifts. In him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. You do not lack any spiritual gift. You have been enriched in every way, in all speaking and in all knowledge. This church, the church of Corinth, is a gifted church. No other church in the New Testament is noted for their gifts like these guys. The purpose of the gifts is there in verse 8. It's to keep them strong and to the end and blameless in Christ. See, gifts that God gives us are the way he maintains us in his, in his church, the way he keeps his people together. He keeps us, keeps us guiltless by trusting in Jesus. And this church does not lack any spiritual gift. But the problem with all good things is their potential for misuse. God has given them richly something that is important and valuable to them so they may be held guiltless until the last day. But that which is so valuable, that is so good, that is so worthwhile can be perverted and twisted and distorted for their own destruction. So let's look at the two things in turn that kind of get spoken of here. It's speech and knowledge are these kind of main two areas. Speech or words are good things given by God. Now the way the gospel came to us in 1 verse 18 was by the preaching of the word. 1 Corinthians 15 it says, um, that which you are, it says, you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you. How do you become a Christian if you don't hear the word of God? See, words are the very gift of our salvation. The words and speech can be used to impress in a way that's extraordinarily dangerous and misleading at the same time. See, the gospel came well, the gospel came not with cleverness of words. It didn't come with eloquence. The Corinthians were tempted, tempted to be convinced of the gospel not by what was preached, but by the eloquence of its preachers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. He came with a demonstration of God's power. Words taught by the Spirit that saw people trust in Jesus. There's a connection here between speech and wisdom. But the words here are not the key. The words that are spoken, it's the word of the cross that is what matters. In other words, it's not the preaching or the preacher, but it's the content of the message that is the way of the gospel. It's so liberating. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this. To see people come to know Jesus, you don't have to be an eloquent preacher. You might be a fumbling, bumbling, tongue-tied person, and it's all right. There's no problems with that. You might never know how to, how to put things or say them in a way that sounds helpful. The point is it's the message of what we say. So the sophisticated arguments and techniques, they don't convert people. Remember, this is the church of God that God brought to himself. It's God who uses the word of Christ who brings people to himself. You don't have to know everything. You just need to know the truth. But I think, like for me, I kind of go, I've got to be a great preacher. I don't know how long I procrastinate sometimes about just the, the opening illustration I'm going to use when I'm going through a sermon. Like, I'm kind of sitting there trying to think through something because I want to make it punchy and helpful. And it's right, you do want to make things helpful so people can hear them. But sometimes I think that, that the words that I say will be powerful because of the way I say them. I need to repent of that. And I need to go, no. The words I say are powerful, not because they've got anything to do with me, but because they are God's words. Because God has spoken of his son and he promises to bring people to himself through the word and by the spirit. So watch out for the seductive power of words. They're a great gift to sustain the church. But Paul warns in chapter 13 verse 1, If I speak but have not love, I'm a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. We might have magnificence of words, but if it's not in love, you might as well just be banging a gong. Um, Paul says in chapter 14 that he would rather speak um, five words that instruct the mind than 10,000 words with the tongue. As we work through the book, we're going to see that speaking in tongues becomes one of the issues. Um, you might be very impressed by people speaking in tongues. It's, profess- it's, it's, it's um, impressive. But Paul would prefer people speak five words that we can understand than 10,000 words that sound impressive that no one understands. I don't know, I've never really had... Um, I'll put this to people occasionally, that if, if I give you five cents... Will you give me $100? I think it's $100. Yeah. So five to 10000 right? Um, no one really wants to do that exchange. Paul's saying five words that you can understand versus 10,000 sounding impressive words. Give me the five I can understand because it's about hearing what God is saying. So Paul thanks God for the gift of words. But then the other issue he comes across is knowledge, speech and knowledge. And it's very much the same thing. Um, Have a look here, chapter 8, verse 1. Paul kind of says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Just as speech is contrasted against love, so knowledge is contrasted against love. Both are gifts from God. And you know the arrogance that comes from someone who thinks they know it all. Kind of, maybe you've been the person, I know I have at times, where you kind of, you, you, you're fresh out of whatever it's been, study, or you kind of, you've been in something and you come out and you're like, no, no, I know what to do here, I've, I've been in. Everyone around you have been doing it for years, but no, you've, you know what's right. It's just the arrogance that comes when, when, when we get puffed up by our knowledge. When we're like, look, I've got it all. And that's what 
Paul is saying here. That's what the letter is about. Unless love governs knowledge and speech, it's dangerous. This church has been given all speech and all knowledge. There is nothing that they lack in this giftedness, in these areas. But they've got it without love. And that's why chapter 13 is so important in 1 Corinthians. So often you hear it as the passage read in, in weddings. It's like um, what love is about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. You know, we hear it spoken in all sorts of things. But it's key to the argument of 1 Corinthians to say all these gifts you've got are useless unless you use them in love. And it's one of the dangers. One of the dangers we face is dispelling the dangers of gifts without criticising the gifts. Right? Because gifts are good, right? We want to say the gifts that God gives us are good. But whenever you kind of talk through the dangers of gifts, everyone's like, oh, you don't believe in gifts. That's, you know, you're a non-gifted type person. Or the other extreme, um, that I've kind of, I could be charged of saying this sometimes, people who go, um, oh, we believe in the gifts, the gifts are great, but they never talk about the dangers, then you kind of say to them, well, you guys are crazy, you're just like taking all these gifts and doing everything everywhere, like what's going on? We've got to hold what Paul holds. Gifts are good. They're given to sustain us to the end. We want to be praying that God would gift us. But at the same time, we want to be careful that we use those gifts in love, in a way that isn't dangerous. This is the church, this church of Corinth, that has been enriched in every way. I want us to get this, verse 5, verse 7. It is not lacking any spiritual gift. If there was ever a charismatic church, this was it. The church of Corinth, right? Because charisma is, is the word for gift. So, so this here is the gifted church. So we're kind of seeing a picture of the prime charismatic church in the Bible. The church that kind of says, we're about gifts. But here's, a, but here's the thing. Apart from Galatians, there's no church that Paul gets more angry at. There's no church that Paul had greater heartache and difficulty with than the church with every gift. Don't believe the lie that giftedness makes you a right church. So often I hear people say, what you really need in a church is gifts of all... You need everyone and every sort of gift to be here. And we do need God's gifts to continue, but if you focus on gifts, we see from this letter, it does nothing without the love that comes with it and the focus of what Paul's going to talk about in a second. The church that prides itself on gifts, on speech and knowledge, on words of wisdom. So the problem with this church is that they pride themselves in gifts. And that's it. They pride themselves in gifts. Their importance, who they are, the thing they focus on, what defines them as a church is their giftedness. To call ourselves a charismatic church, I'm going to say, it's a bit controversial, I'd love to chat about it, it just kind of rubs you the wrong way. To call ourselves a charismatic church, I think is a fundamental error. We must be a Christian church. Not charismatic, not a church that focuses on gifts, but a church that focuses on Christ. To define ourselves around gifts is to look beyond the giver and miss the Jesus that Paul holds out. And we'll see this in a second. We must be a Christian church. So what is the symbol of a church? Is it the symbol of a dove giving gifts? No, it's the symbol of a cross. Where Jesus died and rose again. Now does that mean 
I'm against gifts? No, not at all. And again, I'm getting that problem. <laughs> um, you know, I thank God for gifts. They're great. And let's use the gifts God's given us in the service of the cross and in Jesus. But we've got to understand what they're there for. When we see the error, we need to go, okay, we need to live as people who are using the gifts in love. But I want to just point one more thing out in this section for you. Did you notice the gentleness and generosity in Paul's language when he spoke of this church? I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. See, when you believe in the God of grace, it allows you to be gracious yourself. He's a church that's kind of got almost everything wrong and Paul thanks God for them. I think there's a word here for, for anyone. If, if you're not a Christian, you may have left the church because you know, it's full of hypocrites and you're partly right. You, you may have given up on Jesus because of how bad the church is. But Paul hasn't. Paul doesn't give up on this church. This mess of the church is a church Jesus died for. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of work to be done. But don't you find it comforting that even this church that's kind of the most messed up church there is still a church of God. They still trust in Jesus, that Paul can still thank God for them. For those Christians amongst us, uh, for those of us like myself that sometimes have looked down on other churches, as if they're kind of sub-Christian or we kind of speak of a certain church and we say, oh, they're not Christian at all. And in all fairness, there are some churches that have left the gospel, churches like the Galatian church that kind of want to add or say, no, it's not just about Jesus, it's about Jesus and whenever you add to the gospel, well, you've you, you got no gospel at all. right? So there are those churches there. But my hunch is, and I know it's true with me, that we need to repent of our judgmentalism on others. We need to go, there are other churches who call on the name of Jesus. They might have what we see as an unhealthy focus. They might even be erring on the side of dangerous. But if Paul can show grace to the church at Corinth, our interactions, our love, our, our discussions with these people must be gracious, shouldn't they? Shouldn't we be standing there in love, loving them as brothers and sisters? Rather than judging them and saying, ah, oh, they're hopeless, nothing to do with them. They're the work of Satan. You don't hear that on Paul's lips. Not when they still trust in Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean we can't speak the truth. It doesn't mean we can't discuss issues. It doesn't mean we can't disagree. I think the kind of world of, worldview of tolerance has dealt us a fatal blow almost. And it's like as soon as you say something against someone else, it's like, whoa, you're kind of having to go at them rather than saying, no, I just disagree with you and, and that's okay. You know, it's okay to disagree with others, to discuss your opinions and to challenge the reasons others have. Like we should if we love people, but it must be done in love, in a gracious way, in a way that you can still thank God for them, in a way that you can walk alongside them and go, look, we, we might misunderstand some things, but we still trust in Jesus. Auckland EV needs to be a generous, gracious and loving church. We need to be a bunch of people that are so gripped by the gospel that took this terrorist and pulled him out and made him the kind of world's greatest evangelist and recognised that, that God can take this church of Corinth who's got all sorts of issues and yet Paul can still thank God for them. We must have that same spirit of generosity to those around us. Well, quick look at the divisions. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the issue, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 
This church is a church that's divided. And I want to touch for a second on how Paul speaks here. So there's an issue that's come to him. Someone from Chloe's household has told him about an issue. And I think it's a great model for disagreements in the church. You know, when you've got some issue, it might be with me or it might be with someone else in this church, what you need to do is go straight to the source. Don't go and say to five other people, oh, I've got this problem, that problem, rah, rah. See, Chloe's household went straight to Paul. Said, look, there's problems in the church. Paul comes back to the Corinthians, open and honest, says, ah, oh, some from Chloe's household have said. Chloe's household didn't come and say, oh, there's been, I've got 20 or 30 people that disagree with what's kind of happening. Or there's 20 or 30 people. It's like, who are they? No, no, no. Chloe's household came, named themselves, and spoke to Paul about the issues that were going on. I think it's just a good model to be open. If you've got issues with people, go to them. And I think go to them quickly. Sometimes we can leave our issues kind of weeks and weeks and weeks and they fester and get bigger and bigger. I've never seen an issue resolved better because it was left more than a week. It kind of just festers and makes it worse. So my kind of thinking is if I've got some problem, I want to chat through something with someone, I'll try and do it within three days at the most. Like three days is my kind of time that I want to ring them up. We come up with all sorts of excuses and I'm bad at this, right? I won't ring them. I'm like, I'm not going to see them yet. But it's important. Because divisions will come amongst us. It's important to go, hey, you probably didn't mean it this way, but when you said this the other day, I'm sure you didn't think through the way it came across, but it really hurt me when you said. Or when you said that, it just kind of made me think, is everything going okay for you there? Come in a gracious tone. Quickly. Don't leave it too long. So Paul hears this report from Chloe's household and he replies to the Corinthians. He names his source. And there are quarrels in this church. Some of them say, look, I follow Paul. Paul's my apostle. You know, he's the man I really like. Some say I follow Apollos. Apollos was kind of like another one of the guys that were there. Some say I follow Peter, Cephas. And some say, no, no, I'm not, not one of those guys. I follow Jesus. You kind of hear that in the church today, don't you? I follow Piper. Oh, I follow Laurie, Greg Laurie. You know, I'm, I'm really, I'm a, I'm a Jesus man. I'm so much better than everyone else. I just follow Jesus. You know, I've done that. There's these little factions in the church who they follow and who's important. And we're going to see them more next week. Um, and what's equally as bad is that there's disagreements about who baptised them. They're like, no, I got baptised by Paul. It's like, I'm the best. You know, you know when you try and get worth because you, you, you associate yourself with someone? Um, I do it all the time. Like, I'll tell someone, you know, I saw, I saw someone special. And because I saw them, I'm somehow special too. It's ridiculous. That's what these guys are doing. I've been baptised by Paul. Let me tell you, baptism is such a non-issue for Paul that he can't even remember who he baptised. He kind of goes through and he says, oh, I only baptised Gaius and Crispus. And oh, there might have been some more. And after that, I can't remember anyone. Oh yeah, there was someone else. He's kind of... It's not an issue. See, baptism is a symbol of us being immersed in Jesus. It's a symbol that we are in Christ. It symbolises that we've been washed by Jesus. His death was our death. As we go into the water of baptism, it's that we've been cleansed. And, and, and his, his death was ours, and as we come out, it's kind of a picture of resurrection, of being risen again, that if we trust in Jesus, we're united with him. So it, all it does, it's just like a wedding ring, you know? Um, but mine's now not going to come off. Why is that? Okay. So the wedding ring is a symbol that I'm married. I could not have it when I'm still married, right? But putting it on, it's just a symbolic thing to say, yes, it's pointing to a, re- a relational reality. 
Um, and that's what baptism is. It's a sign. It's a pointer to a relational reality that you are in relationship with God, that you're united with Him, that, that you and Jesus are now together because of what He has done for you. So, like I said before, we'll be baptising some people in two weeks' time. It'll be a great celebration of a public sign of what's already gone on in, in people's hearts. Um, so if you do want to be baptised and you haven't yet, come and, come and chat with me. But then and finally, we get to the key theme of the book. The one that drives it all. The one thing that they fail to grasp. If you're going to go home today with one key idea, this is it. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If your focus is anything but the gospel, which is the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, uh, all that he has done and what that means for us, if your focus is anything but that, you are inhibiting people's salvation. You are emptying the cross of its power. You're taking away power from God to convert people because you're talking about things that aren't going to convert people. You're talking about things that just... What is it? Fancy words, eloquent speech, good music, a fancy location... Uh, great preachers, spiritual gifts, even the effects of the gospel. You know, we can have people who focus, we can focus on loving the sick, caring for the needy, and that can be our main deal. But they're effects of what we need to be focused on. They're effects of what it means if we trust in Jesus, we'll do those things. Or even baptism itself, the sign that says it's all about the gospel. We can focus on it and it can become the big issue that the church divides over. To focus on any of these is to empty the cross of its power. If you want to see people captivated by God, if you want to see God work powerfully in their lives, you need to be grounded in the gospel of God. This Saturday, through a weird chain of events, I've been asked to speak in front of um, a live audience uh, with three other people on the topic of... um, of the topic of can Christians have gay marriage? So I was kind of like, do I really want to speak on this in public? There'll be five video cameras. Um, it'll be recorded and put together on a DVD that'll be sold and pushed heavily through Parachute Conference. Um, and basically, I'll be there. I've got seven minutes to explain my view, uh, lovingly, humbly, and then probably half an hour where there'll be a roundtable discussion with the three others that I'm, t- I'm, I'm having this conversation with, and then probably another 15, 20 minutes of questions from the audience. And I've got to tell you, I'm freaked out. I don't know why I said yes to this. I'm like, it's not the main deal, this isn't the main issue, but I wanted to hold out the truth of the gospel in it. I feel totally inadequate. Totally. Two of the people I'll be discussing with have PhDs. Um, Two have openly expressed that they have homosexual attraction. Uh, One of them has published a book this year called Being Gay, Being Christian. He's one of the guys with a PhD. So I'm going to be discussing with a guy that published a book this year, this stuff, and I really haven't thought that much about it. The guy that's on my side is a Catholic priest from Christchurch, and so it's kind of going to be an odd discussion. Um, And here I am, two and a bit years out of college, feeling like I've bitten off far more than I can chew. Why did I say yes? (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because I am convinced that God's power for salvation, God's power to bring people to himself, is found not in eloquent speech, 
Not in kind of fancy wisdom. Not in kind of the way you say it or how you dress or kind of the arguments you've got, but in his word. In the gospel that is spoken so clearly. And all I want to do is love people and show them what he says to us in his word. Now I know I'm going to be laughed at. I know people there are going to go, oh, you actually believe in the word of God. But that's the thing. It's not me that's going to convert them, it's God. And that word of God will change some people's minds. So there'll be people, when I say convert them, I mean non-Christians that will be there in the audience. Um, the people that are at the, at the table or claim to be Christians, I'm not going to try and change their minds, but I want to hold out the truth of the gospel. The truth of God's word in a way that is unashamedly him speaking. As I speak, I need to do it in love with all graciousness and gentleness, not compromising what, what I see the Bible saying and honestly listening to what they have to say. But don't for one minute think my confidence comes from myself, from a piece of paper I've got that says more theological college or from the limited number of years I've got in ministry or the books that I've read or I'm going to read this week. My confidence comes from God who promises to work through his word. Don't you for one minute think you can't share Jesus with people? Don't you think for one minute that it's because you're not gifted enough or you're not eloquent enough or you're not wise enough or God's power does not depend on us. He takes a terrorist anti-Christian, brings him to himself, a guy who fumbles and kind of... And the world knows Jesus through his word. God's power doesn't depend on us, but the gospel... It points to his son. Friends, God will continue to build his church. It may feel insignificant, it may feel small, it may feel we're against the battle. But God will continue to build his church. I see no reason why he should stop. And I see no reason why he can't use you. Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe that you would speak to us. That you would come and Jesus would live on this earth and die in our place. Father, we confess that often we aren't gracious in the way we love others, brothers and sisters. That we kind of, um, we just kind of have a judgmentalism about us. We think we've got everything right. Lord, we are sorry for that. Help us to be able to hold out the truth without compromising it yet at the same time love people. Help us, Lord, in all that we do to focus on the gospel of Jesus, that we may put him first, that that may be what defines us, is that we are people of the word, we are people who are grounded in what you've done, that Jesus' death and resurrection makes all the difference. So, Lord, don't let us believe a lie that we can't do it because, you know, we haven't got the, 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 the speech or the, the knowledge or the kind of the abilities. We're not, we're not good with words. Father, help us to be people who always speak your truth in love, the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, captivate us as we focus on him. Amen.